If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. As we turn to God's Word, let's not fail to also turn to the author and ask his help as we look to him through his Word. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, As we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to know, hearts to embrace, and hands to work out your truth. Father, may your word that we have read and that we will read, and your word that we will now consider, strengthen us with patience and endurance to run the race set before us. And Father, while we're running, may we rest in the confidence that the good work begin in us will be carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I can't remember when it was or where I was when I first heard it. I only remember being woken up when I heard these words from a conference speaker. Y'all been there, right? I mean, drifting off, distracted, thinking about anything. And this was before smartphones, okay? So, I must have been thinking about something else, but when I heard these words, it was as if my, um, it was as if, um, you know, when you kind of jerk your head, you'd fallen asleep, and all of a sudden, you're riveted, you're wide awake, and these are the words that I heard from this conference speaker. What you believe is what you do. Everything else is just religious talk. That woke me up. And I've been thinking about that to this day. What you believe is what you do. Everything else is just religious talk. Now, have you ever heard a statement like that, similar to that? Um, What are your thoughts? Is it accurate? Is it true? Let's just take two topics in Christian doctrine. Just Let's pick two. Sin and forgiveness. So let me ask you this question. Do you confess your sin? Do you ask for forgiveness? And do you forgive? Notice how all those questions started. Do you? Do you? Do you? Do you confess your sin? Behind that must be a belief about sin. Do you ask for forgiveness? Behind that is a belief that you need to ask for forgiveness. And then, do you forgive? When someone comes to you, a fellow believer, and says, Will you forgive me? Do you forgive? Because what you do reveals what you really believe. 
Now, I believe we will see in our text something about how beliefs are made known by behavior, in behavior. What you believe is what you do. Here we are in our fifth week in Galatians. That one word theme in Galatians is faith, specifically justification by faith. And we're getting to verse 16 today. Remember three times in this verse, verse 2, 16, Paul wants us to get the difference and the distinction between a justification by works of the law and a justification by faith in Jesus Christ. He says it not once, not twice, but three times. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Martin Luther in the early part of the 16th century discovered what Christians before and since have discovered, that Christianity was not about what they had to do for God, but rather what God had done for them in Christ. It's the grammar of the gospel. It is what God has done for His people in Christ that spurs on and motivates and causes and results in what we are to do in response. Luther wrote of this epistle, this letter to the Galatians. This epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. If you read Luther's writings, there is a genuine love. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 119 speaks of loving God's word, loving the law of God. And here, as you read Luther's commentary, there's an affection, an affection for the word, especially Galatians. Now, we will see embedded in and running throughout Galatians the biblical teaching about salvation from sin and death that characterized the work of the Protestant reformers. That is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and all for the glory of God alone. And I mentioned this last week. I think it's worth mentioning it again. Why is this so important? Is this just to pass a theology exam? Is this just something to impress yourself or someone else with? Why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal? I mean, Paul obviously thought it was a big deal. Three times in one verse. Why? Well, first of all, it takes God at his word. I used to not like this bumper sticker, and I still don't in some sense. You know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Um, Usually somebody believes a bad interpretation of God's word. But um, there is a truth to that, isn't it? God said it. We believe it. It honors God. But also, if we're saved by faith in what Jesus has done, not saved by faith in what we have done or have to do, then we've got some serious more free time on our hands. We are freed up to be able to love our neighbor. It's been said, and I think it's true, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. 
The person sitting next to you in the pew does. The person around the table at breakfast does. The down and out neighbor, the distressed coworker. If we're not worried about saving ourselves, but we're resting in being saved by another, then we can be instruments in the Redeemer's hands to communicate the good news of the gospel in word and with those deeds that flow from it. Here we are in this series, The Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. We've seen that ignorance and confusion followed Jesus wherever he went then and now. And ignorance and confusion follows the gospel then and now. It's a common problem. First century, 21st century. Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he came to do, that is the gospel, cannot be separated. Then and now, Galatians addresses the ignorance and cuts through the confusion in order to provide clarity on the gospel. And my hope and prayer for me and for all of us is as we walk through Galatians, we will grow increasingly clear on the gospel. And because of that, we will grow increasingly um, at rest and at peace, but also increasingly, as it were, agitated that others know this good news as well. Six chapters, 149 verses. I, I beat my record. I, I read it the other day in like 10 minutes. That was fast, but it can be done. It's a fast read. Of course, it takes a lifetime to read in depth. The first two chapters are autobiography, Paul's personal defense of his gospel ministry, his apostleship. The next two chapters are Theology, Paul is providing a theological defense of his gospel message, justification by faith. In the last two chapters, ethics, his practical application of the gospel message to his readers' lives. One commentator says this, this book, this letter is what God has done. In chapters 1 and 2, teaches us what we should believe in chapters 3 and 4 and how we should live in chapters 5 and 6. Thus far, we've heard an opening statement of the defense of the gospel. We saw that in the first five chapters of the letter. The moment, the historical background, the messenger, Paul, the apostle, and the message, the gospel. And we saw that right off the bat in the first few verses is the gospel, the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, rescue and deliverance by Jesus, and then the grace and peace that comes. Then we've seen a focus on the one and only gospel. And we saw in those next verses a framework to help us understand and apply Galatians. Because we saw there that the gospel will be distorted and the gospel must be defended. We saw that the gospel is completely unique. Paul says to the church then and says to us now, accept no substitutes, embrace no imitations, and tolerate no distortions. We also observed so far a radical change of life where Paul speaks of his conversion. He speaks of where the gospel comes from, God, and how the gospel comes to us by revelation and what the gospel does when it comes. It changes us. We saw that God calls us by his grace, reveals to us his son, and sets us apart for his service. And then last week, 
we saw in preserving the truth of the gospel, the reason for the trip to Jerusalem and the result of the trip. There were two reasons, a divine and a human reason we saw. Paul was divinely called to go. And he wanted, from a human perspective, to know that his race that he had run and was running was not in vain. Paul went to Jerusalem to prove that the gospel that he had was identical with the other apostles and not just independent of it. And we saw the result of the trip was that the truth of the gospel was preserved and the unity of the church was strengthened. We saw that the truth of the gospel is one and unchanging and it must be maintained. In chapter 1, Paul said this about the gospel, accept no alternatives. And thus far in chapter 2, he has said, accept no additives. In Jerusalem, we saw last week a meeting where God sovereignly preserves the truth of the gospel. And now we're moving to Antioch. And we will see a clash. And there we will see not only that God sovereignly preserves, but God's people actively defend the gospel. Now, as I was preparing this message, uh, you'll notice uh, the outline didn't get done before the print. I'll share that in just a moment. But my earlier title was Denying the Gospel, because what you will see in our text is a denial of the gospel. That's true, but a defense of the gospel rises up to address the denial. The denial is not the dominant theme. The defense of the gospel dominates. And as we work our way through our text, we will stop and look at three things. A confrontation that was unexpected, conduct that was out of line, and a confession that was necessary. A confrontation, conduct, and a confession. Let's read verses 11 through 16 of chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But... When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. An unexpected confrontation we see in verse 11. Here is a clash of the titans. Now let's first note this, the distance from Jerusalem to Antioch. Well, by a map, it's about 300 miles. But that's not the distance I'm talking about. 
Here's the distance. This is a movement from they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me to I opposed him to his face. Now let that sink in for a minute. Uh, Those of you that know the book of Acts, 28 chapters, right? The first half is pretty much the ministry of Peter. And the second half is pretty much the ministry of Paul. Peter and Paul are the dominant men in Acts as the Holy Spirit is at work spreading the gospel and changing lives all over the Mediterranean world. But here is a clash of these two men. Notice in our text this image of two men standing. Two men standing. Paul says that he was standing in opposition to his face. Peter, on the other hand, according to Paul, stood condemned. This is a confrontation not between the church and the world, but here is a confrontation, as it were, in the church. Imagine this, a fight breaks out at church. Two friends, two pillars, two titans of the church are in conflict. Um, This is a tense and dramatic moment in the New Testament. Some early church fathers didn't believe that this happened. Some later commentator says, yes, it happened and it has resulted in a permanent rift between Peter and Paul. Not only is there a rift, they say, between Jesus and Paul, there's even a a rift between um, Paul and Peter. Once again, we're back at a what-if moment in the history of the church. What was this confrontation going to... What was going to result from it? Would the church drift into a Jewish backwater of stagnation? Would there be a permanent rift between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? What if? What if? This clash, this conflict, this confrontation, I want us to all notice, was the result of conduct. Conduct that we will see was not according to the truth of the gospel. It was behavior that was out of line with the truth of the gospel. So in verses 12 through 14, what we see is out of line conduct. Some translations translate uh, this not in step with, not acting in line with, not straightforward about. Now, why did Peter stand condemned? According to Paul, according to the text, it's because of his conduct. Let's take a look and explore this conduct. Let's look first at the outward behavior, the visible conduct of Peter. Peter drew back and separated himself. And this this, um, word translated drew back has a military retreat connotation. In other words... The troops all of a sudden are turning tail and running. They are retreating. Peter drew back and separated himself. In the first century, Jews did not publicly associate with Gentiles. And you heard that from Acts chapter 10, especially at one of the most intimate times of fellowship. And what is that? A meal. A meal. 
his outward behavior, his visible conduct. He drew back and separated himself. This is an about face from what he learned and believed from his experience that we read in Acts chapter 10. Peter makes an about face. But it's not just outward behavior, it's an inner attitude, this invisible conduct. Look with me. What does he say? He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Fearing what's most likely these same false teachers that were agitating Paul, that were causing the trouble in the Galatian church. This is an inward attitude of fear. It's not a matter of principle. It's a case of cowardice. Years ago, my attention was drawn to act, excuse me, to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. Anybody know that off the top of your head? Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. And here, Peter has been snared. By the fear of man. But it's not just cowardice. This is specifically hypocrisy. Because Peter was allowing cultural differences to become more important than gospel unity. The unity that you heard expressed at the Jerusalem meeting earlier in chapter 2. Peter didn't deny the gospel in his teaching, but rather in his conduct. His behavior was a contradiction to the truth of the gospel. In effect... Peter is ashamed of the gospel. He's afraid to take a stand. One commentator writes this, Peter knew perfectly well that faith in Jesus was the only condition on which God will have fellowship with sinners. But he added circumcision as an extra condition on which he was prepared to have fellowship with them, thus contradicting the gospel. Peter's action is implying that Gentile Christians were not truly members of the household of faith. Otherwise, he would have continued to associate with these Gentile believers. And notice that this this behavior has consequences. Because who is led astray? Not just the Jews are are going along with this hypocrisy, but, but Barnabas himself, the one who was with Paul in Jerusalem, who, was, who received the right hand of fellowship. Peter's example even leads Barnabas astray. Paul protests. And again, Paul cares enough to confront here his open public rebuke. He charges Peter with acting in insincerity, hypocrisy, not from a personal conviction. Paul sees that this is not a matter of Peter's conviction. This is a matter of Peter's fear of man. So he charges Peter with not living in step with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel that we saw was preserved. Now Paul must continue to defend. Here you see the relationship to the truth of the gospel with life. Conduct that's not in step with the gospel. You could translate this 
in step with as ortho-walking with the gospel. Kids, have you ever been to the orthodontist? Yes, and what does the orthodontist do? Straightens teeth, right. So this is the idea that Paul is saying that Peter is not walking straight in line with the gospel. Ortho-walking. Conduct, let's remind ourselves, is not the gospel, but the implications and the consequences of the gospel. And in this particular case, what we see here is we must have fellowship with anyone who is in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we refuse, we're making a distinction that God does not make. Those of you that read my emails, and there may be few of you, What do I say every week without fail? What am I quoting? Romans 15, right? Because as a church, what do we do? We worship God with one voice. And what do we do as a church? We welcome one another as Jesus Christ has welcomed us. I didn't realize it until studying this. This is a proof Helping us understand Romans 15, 7. Because right now, Peter is not welcoming others as Christ has welcomed Peter. He's saying by withdrawing, by separating, he's saying, you're not welcome. Do we make any distinctions with people that God does not make? I always tell people that the doors of this church are open wide to any and all kinds of people in whom the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work in rich people? You better believe it. Poor people? Absolutely. PhDs? I hope. Haven't finished high school? You bet. All kinds of people. What they look like on the outside, where they've been. Because all that matters is faith in Christ. And all that matters is not where they've been, but where they're going, where we're going together. How do we fail to eat with fellow Christians? Paul is, is concentrating on the essentials of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ, justification by faith. To be sure, there's distinctions. Hey, we're in a denomination. There's distinctives. But is our hearts, are our doors open wide to any and all kinds of people in whom the Lord is at work? Well, how did Paul confront this conduct? How did he address this behavior? He brought to bear a confession of faith. By reminding everyone, himself, Peter, and others, what they all believed. Because in verses 15 and 16, we see a necessary confession. In other words, earlier, there's the charge, hey, buddy, you're out of line. And now it's Paul saying, I have a confession to make. We have a confession to make. Notice what Paul does and what he does not do. Paul does not exert worldly force. He does not try to achieve behavior modification through human power. You know, imagine the scene standing 
face to face. Is this an issue of Paul being physically stronger than Peter? And let's wrestle? You may laugh, but isn't that what we do a lot of times? We try to exert human power. Paul doesn't exert human power. Rather, he declares something revealed from another world. Faith. And indeed, as it's the gospel, it is the power of salvation for all who believe, as he would later write in Romans chapter 1. Look at this confession. Again, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, it's a universal problem. Something is wrong between God and man, all men, Jew and Gentile. Now, underneath this clash of titans between Paul and Peter was another clash of titans. It's a theological principle that's at stake, the truth of the gospel. This is a big deal. He's making a confession of faith. Yet we know. Yet we know. Before we get into justification by faith and justification by works of the law. Um, Think about the church's attitude toward this topic. Have you ever heard the story of the man who was asked to explain the difference between ignorance and apathy? You know what his answer was? I don't know and I don't care. Do any of y'all get that? That's the church's attitude sometimes when it comes to justification. I don't care. I don't know. Paul cares. He wants people to know. He wants to remind Peter. Again, look at this. It's interesting. The quote marks end at verse 14, but there's no original quote marks. And I believe his words to Peter keep going. It doesn't just end at verse 14. It goes 15. We ourselves are Jews. Hey, Peter, you and me are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we, Peter, you and me, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Here are the two options to be right with God. Justification by works of the law. The law being the total, the sum total of God's commandments and the works of the law, acts done in obedience. There's two options. Either obey fully or justification by or through faith in Jesus Christ. One commentator writes, the reason faith justifies is that it takes hold of Christ and Christ is the one who makes us right with God. We are acceptable to God, not by keeping the law ourselves, but by trusting in the only man who ever did keep it, Jesus Christ. I love the Sunday school this morning. Thank you to those of you participating. Yes, we are saved by faith. Faith not in our works, but faith in Jesus' works. And so indeed, we are sort of saved by works as well. Not our works, but Jesus' works. We're saved by faith in the person and work of Jesus. And it's because of this verse that Martin Luther writes, and you've heard it before. 
When Paul starts talking about justification by faith, this is what Luther says. This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is therefore that we should know this article well. In other words, not with a response of I don't know and I don't care, but know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Look with me at verse 16 again. Three times Paul is beating it into our heads, and there's an ascending scale of emphasis. There's the general. We know. Hey, Peter, you, me, and everybody I'm writing to, we know. There's the personal. We also have believed because justifying faith is personal faith. And then finally, there's universal. No one will be justified. So what's your attitude right now toward justification by faith? Ignorance? Apathy? My friends, you have come to the right place. By God's grace, we're going to grow in our understanding and our appreciation and our ability to put this into practice. Justification by faith is scandalous because none of us like charity. We fight it. No one could have come up with this on their own. How can we take this glorious truth of the gospel and beat it into our heads continually? My friends, behavior modification in this case and in all cases is done through belief adjustment. At the heart, at the root of behavior is belief. That's why our confessions of faith are about what we believe. When was the last time you said you're out of line to yourself or someone else? Have you done that lately? This morning at the breakfast table, I was told that there was food on my face. You know what? My initial response was, I don't really like that. But you know what? That was love. You know why? Because had that not been said, I would have shown up here with food on my face. Do you have that kind of attitude toward one another? Can you say to someone you're not living in step with the truth of the gospel, in line with the truth of the gospel? Can you say to someone that, hey, you're not living out the implications and consequences of the gospel? Because the refusal by Peter and Barnabas to engage in table fellowship in Antioch signaled more than cowardice in the face of pressure tactics from Jerusalem. It suggested a deep-seated inconsistency in their understanding of the implications of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. They had shaken hands on it in Jerusalem following Paul's visit, but they had not worked out its consequences. This text is a call to all of us to think about the implications of the gospel in area, every area of our life and bring our thinking, our feeling, and our behavior in line. Because the truth of the gospel is in radical opposition to the world's assumptions. And we live in the world and therefore we have embraced many of the world's assumptions. Therefore, Christian living is a continual realignment 
process of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. And my friends, it needs to be said, we can be out of line on the left side of the line or the right side of the line. This church, you and me, are called to be aligned and continually realigned to the gospel. And we need to have the love and the courage to tell one another winsomely in the face, you're out of line with the gospel. And motivate, not with guilt, but motivate with grace, just like Paul did. He told Peter, we know. We know. We're called to do that in the wisdom and strength that God provides. And in doing so, we will bring much glory to God and do much good to our brother and sister. So one final word. What you believe is what you do. May God be pleased to align and realign our beliefs to the truth of the gospel and enable our conduct to more and more be in line with the truth of the gospel declaration that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And may we welcome them into our fellowship as Christ has welcomed us. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for how you have sovereignly preserved the truth of the gospel. But you have done that through your people who have actively defended the gospel. Oh, Father, there is no one within these walls who cannot use a readjustment to help get back in step with the truth of the gospel, in line with the truth of the gospel. Oh, Father, would you be enabling all of us to both give and receive that kind of loving instruction. Father, would you be pleased to protect this church that we would, by your enabling grace, both defend the gospel and proclaim the gospel the gospel that really does free us from a life of self-service that ends in death to a life that begins with our death and, and, and continues with service to others. Oh, Father, be pleased to, to realign us to the truth of the gospel, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last one, indeed.